0: Amen. Okay, if you want to turn in your Bibles to chapters, chapters 13 through um, 24, we're going to cover all 12 chapters this morning. Yeah. Uh, Now, there's two questions that should immediately come to your mind, is why and how. Why am I doing this, and then how am I going to do this? Well, let me answer the questions first. Why am I doing this? Was as you will see, these uh, twelve chapters cover twelve nations that were troubling and were surrounding Israel at that time, and they have a central one central message that repeats itself over and over and over again in all twelve chapters. So rather than taking uh, twelve sermons that essentially have the same message, what I'm gonna do is kinda package it together, okay? Um, Not that they're bad messages, but it's redundant, so to speak. But um, nestled within these 12 chapters are what I call little nuggets. Little things, nuggets that you don't wanna pass up, so we're not gonna skip over them quickly. Um, There's a phrase that goes like this, uh, you don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, we got this bathwater, but we're going to just spend a few minutes on each of the topics that you find in there. And in your bulletin, uh, I've listed the six subjects. And so you can pray for me that I don't get confused, because usually I do three points, and this time we have six. So, it's going to be interesting. Now, the counselors tell us that men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti. What does that mean? Men take one subject at a time. They want to look just look at the subject and tell me all about that. Women, however, are like spaghetti because they can take six or seven subjects and talk about them and think of them all at the same time. That's not putting out men or women. We're just, that's just the way we are. Amen? So this morning, with a good portion of the men up at the conference, I thought it would be providential that we're going to cover... a a whole bunch of interrelated subjects that don't necessarily aren't tied together exactly. So men, just hang in there. Take it one at a time. Women, just enjoy this multiplicity of subjects. So let's pray first. Father, help us as we open your word. Help us to understand what you have for us. And then apply it to our lives, we pray in your name. Amen. Okay, the first little nugget, the first little baby that we don't want to throw out with the bathwater is, the Lord will hold all accountable. Twelve nations, and he is going to hold every one of them accountable. Uh, Which are the nations? Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Iran, Cush, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Tyre and Sidon and Tarshish. All 12 of those nations appear in these 12 chapters. And he says he is going to hold them accountable for what they're doing. Um, each of these countries, city-states, had a negative um, relationship with Israel. And they were pagan nations. They were worshipping false gods. And God was going to hold them accountable. Now, these nations uh, were dealing with Israel probably around 700 B.C., about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Now, they don't have many, um, you don't have many reactions to these nations at all. Um, but Israel, they were important to Israel back then. But the thing that we want to remember as we look at this passage is the Lord is going to hold them all accountable. They will be accountable. And he not only holds all nations accountable, but he holds us accountable. Did you know that? Even as believers, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, which is the seat where we're going to be held accountable with what we have done with the faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to be held accountable. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20 that unbelievers will be held accountable in the great white throne judgment for rejecting Christ and not responding to the gospel. Hebrews 9.27 says, and it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgments. After this comes accountability. So nations, cities, states, individuals, you, me, will be held accountable now the application for us is found in Romans chapter 12 let me read it Romans 12 um, 19 let me get there well I'm going to go to verse 17 I think Romans 12 here we go um, This is the Apostle Paul writing to Christians. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Never pay back evil for evil. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then he tells us why. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. God will hold them accountable. Never take revenge. For it is written... Vengeance, or accountability, is mine, and I will repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll hear, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, because God is going to hold them accountable. Every one of us, you, me, your neighbors, your friends, your husbands, your wives, they will be held accountable. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Lord will hold those accountable. Okay, second little nugget, or baby that we don't want to throw out with the bathwater, is the Lord is righteous in all of his judgments. The Lord is righteous in all judgments. Of his judgments. Now, one could immediately assume, in looking at these these passages, that um, they're being judged because they're not Jewish, they're not believers. Not so. Look with me in chapter thirteen, verse eleven. Verse eleven of chapter thirteen. Thus, I will punish the world, that is, these pagan nations, for their evil for their wickedness, for their iniquity. I will put an end to the arrogant and the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. He's, he's holding them accountable because of their evil, their wickedness, their iniquity, and their arrogance and their pride and their haughtiness of the ruthless. That's what they will be held accountable. Psalm 19, let me read it to you. Psalm 19, here we go. says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This is verse 9 of Psalm 19. The judgments of the Lord are true, and they are righteous altogether. The Lord will hold them accountable, and when he does, he'll be absolutely righteous in what he does. Now, Peter in uh, the book of Acts chapter 10 is speaking to a bunch of pagans. Remember? Cornelius is a Roman cohort. So he's got all his friends. They're, They're not Jewish. They're all Gentiles. They're pagans. And let me read you what he says. That's Acts chapter 10. Uh, Let's see. That's chapter 9. Where do I want to go here? I want to go to Romans uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 34. There we go. Okay. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I must certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So what is Peter saying? It doesn't make any difference if you're Jewish. God doesn't show any partiality, right? Look at what's in your heart. Now, that word partiality is an interesting phrase. It literally means to receive a face. God does not receive a face. What does that mean, Pastor Neil? It means he doesn't look on your outward. He doesn't look on your face. He doesn't look at your color of your skin, your national origin, or whether you have a nose ring or you're all tatted up. He doesn't look at that. He looks at your heart. He doesn't receive a face. Who are people that receive a face? We are. (laughs) We see a strange person. We say, oh, I don't want anything to do with him. We see somebody who's all tatted up or with a nose ring or a different color or a different race. Uh, uh. We judge a person based on their outward circumstances and what they look like, don't we? Yes, we do. Come on. Do you remember the story of Saul? And he had failed the Lord, so Samuel the prophet was sent to Jesse to pick a new king. Do you remember that? And so Samuel is sitting there, and Jesse's having all his uh, sons pass before Saul. And the first one, I think, was Eliab, and he's a tall, handsome man. And Samuel thought in his heart, oh, that's, that's a man. And what did God say to him? No, no, no. Um, because man looks on the outward, but God looks on his heart. And he could see what was in Eliab's heart. He was looking for David, who had a heart after God. You see? So God isn't one. He's absolutely righteous. He looks at our heart, and as a result, out of the heart comes our actions. He looks at our heart, not at not the way we look or our nationality. He doesn't care if you're Polish or Italian or German or Filipino or Chinese or African American. He doesn't care about that. He's looking at your heart. God is absolutely righteous in everything he does. And when he judges, he's absolutely perfect. Now, some people don't like the book of James because James really gets under our skin because he just he just nails it, doesn't he? Listen to James speaking to the church. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Same word, personal favoritism, receiving a face. It's the same word. Don't just, don't operate in faith by receiving faces. Just, you know, just looking at the outward. He goes on. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there's also a poor man in dirty clothes, you pay special attention to who? The rich man. Why? You're looking at him, oh, goody, he's here, he'll give lots of money. Or maybe he'll be my friend, he'll give me money. (laughs) You pay attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here, my friend, in the good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool." What are you doing? You're receiving a face. You're showing partiality. What does God do? God doesn't do that. He doesn't care what you look like. He's looking at your heart. And as Christians, we should begin not to receive a face, not to show partiality, because it's an expression of the character of God question of the character of God. So if we see a strange person come into the church or look a little different or a different color or a different background or different, it doesn't make any difference. We're not to show partiality. Okay. And he's absolutely righteous in all of his judgments. Okay, a third little uh, nugget, baby, that we don't want to throw out at the bathwater. The Lord knows and deals with the source of these actions. The Lord knows and deals with the source of the actions. He sees these evil nations and what they're doing to Israel, and He knows the source of their actions and He deals with them. Where do I get that? Chapter 14, verse 12. Read along with me. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. Some King James Bibles translate that Oh, how have you fallen from from heaven? Lucifer, what? Son of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and will plunder over you. Is this the man who made the whole earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like the wilderness, and overthrew its cities, who did not allow this prison, the prisoners to go home? Who's he talking about? Well, turning to back to 14.4, he takes up a, a, a taunt against the king of Babylon. So he's talking about the king of Babylon, but suddenly, beginning in verse 12, he begins to talk about Satan, Lucifer, what's going on here? What's what's the story? Well, there's three different interpretations. I'll give you the correct one, which happens to be the one I believe. (laughs) First of all, he starts talking about the kingdom, uh, king of Babylon in verse 4. He continues on. And beginning in verse 12, he begins to spiritualize the whole thing. He starts talking about Lucifer. That has some possibilities. The second is that he's talking about the king of Babylon, but then he takes a rabbit trail. It's completely just a rabbit trail, and he's talking about Satan. The correct one is he starts talking about the king of Babylon, but then he recognizes who is the power behind the king of Babylon. It's Satan. Who Who is the enemy of the church? Is it all these liberals and all these people who are not... Against, uh, not for Christ? No, no, no. They're being empowered by Satan. Yeah, and you say, that's, that's pretty, pretty heavy, Neil. Well, let's take a look. I think I get this idea, and it's reinforced in Ezekiel chapter 28. Turn there for just a minute. Here, the prophet Ezekiel is speaking about, in verse 11, the king of Tyre. Another pagan nation. He's speaking against the king of Tyre. And look what he does. In verse 14, all of a sudden, look what he says And you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found, unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Was he talking about? He's talking about Satan. The power that was behind the king of Tyre, the power that was behind the king of Babylon, the power that's behind those who oppose the kingdom of God is directly related to the Lucifer, the son of the morning, the Satan himself. So, the application is those who trouble the kingdom of God those who stand opposed to you and all that you're trying to do for the kingdom of God, it's not them physically, but there's somebody urging them on. There's somebody empowering them. There's somebody wanting to get to you through them. You say, that sounds kind of creepy, Neil. Yeah, it is kind of creepy. However, I have New Testament scripture to back it up. Ephesians chapter 6. you want to turn there, you can. Or just listen to me read it. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Look what he says. Here it is. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against the king of Babylon. Our struggle is not against the king of Tyre. Our struggle is not against those who oppose you, those who oppose the kingdom of God. Who is our struggle against? Well, read on. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly paces. Therefore, take up the full armor of God That you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then he gives us six things that we need to take up the armor of God. We don't have time to do it this morning, but that's what he's. And then the seventh thing he tells us, having put on the armor of God, we're to pray. So the battle that you face is not. your mother-in-law or your boss or anybody else that you're struggling with. The person, the issue is really spiritual forces of wickedness. Now, I'm not saying they're demon-possessed, but oftentimes, many times, they're empowered by Satan to try and get you, to destroy the kingdom, to stop you in what you're doing. And the Lord knows who they are, where they get their power, and how, he, how to deal with them. And He will deal with them. And He's given us the power to do so. So, Lord, no one deals with the source of their actions. Okay. Number four the Lord's plans will not be frustrated. Going back to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27 right in the middle of this passage, here's a memory verse. The Lord's plans will not be frustrated. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? As for his stressed-out hand, who can turn it back? Here's the question. For the Lord of hosts has planned, who can frustrate it? Nobody. As for his stressed-out hand, who can turn it back? Nobody. Now, this particular passage within the, the context of the whole Bible does not teach determinism. Now, determinism is, is can be illustrated this way. All the world is a gigantic chessboard, okay? And all the pieces are there. And God passively takes, takes the, those portions, those, those, those pieces of chess... And he moves them wherever he wants, and we're just passive, kind of just being moved around wherever we want. Because it seems to say that, Lord of Hosts is playing. We can frustrate us, for stress out him, we turn it back. Nobody, he's in charge. That's right. But if you look at it within the context of the whole Bible, Romans eight twenty eight says what? For God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes. That's what the Bible says. Okay, You take these two, and what that means is, uh, even with our best, say, take something that we do is really, really good. He takes our best, and he uses it for his purposes. Okay? But he also takes our (laughs) not-so-best. And he uses it for that in purposes. And then he takes our really awful things that we've done, and guess what he does with that? He works it together for his purposes. So he takes our good things, our not-so-good things, and our really awful things, and he works it together for his purposes. So how do you... Well, Pastor Neil, how do you put these two things together? He's absolutely sovereign, and yet we somehow have a free will to make choices and do things. Well, the best illustration I've heard is you're in London, and you're taking a cruise to New York City, okay? You get on the boat. And those five or six days, whenever it takes you to get from London to New York City on this big steamship, you can do whatever you want. You can stay in your stateroom, read a book. You can take a nap whenever you want. You can spend all your time in the dining hall eating those, all those meals they keep serving on cruise ships. You can do that, right? You can do whatever you want. You can arrange the deck chairs however you want. You can play tennis, swim in the pool, Right? The boat is still going to New York City. (laughs) It doesn't make a difference. You do whatever you want. But you're still going to end up in New York City. God. Who's going to frustrate God? Nobody. He's in charge. But he works all things together for the good. For your purposes. The Lord's plans will not be frustrated. Now. What's the application? Here's the application for us. Can you begin to act in your situation? Okay, your situation, in the place that you find yourself in, can you, be, can you begin to act as if He is going to work all things together for the good? And what does He call us to do? He calls us to begin to act like this book is true, begin to act. In what he says in this book, as if he is going to work all things together for good, even though it doesn't look like right now. The Lord's plan will not be frustrated. Can we begin to act as if we really believe that? I pray that we will. Okay, number five. Okay. I'm all right. Um, Chapter 19, verse 16. 19. Verse 16, yes. The Lord works miracles. Listen to what he says here. The Lord works miracles, beginning in verse 16. In that day, ask yourself this question, what day? That's always good. In that day, Egyptians will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which is going to wave over them. The land of of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned would be dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. In that day, what day? Five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan. What? And swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. Huh? One day will be called the city of destruction. In that day, what day? There will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of Egypt. What? And a pillar of the Lord near its borders. Say again? It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors and he will send them a savior and a champion. He will deliver them. What? (laughs) Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. What day? They're going to know the Lord? They will even worship with sacrifice and offering. will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and he will heal them. What? (laughs) In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. What? In that day, Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth? Are you kidding me? Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Say that again, please? Are you kidding me? You see, we would look at the history of Egypt and Assyria and dealing with the Jewish nation, we would say, Ain't never gonna happen. Ain't never gonna happen. But guess what? That happened. Why? Because God works miracles. God works miracles. The application? Maybe you find yourself in a situation. And you're thinking, it's never going to get better. This is it. Just this is it. Or maybe you have a person in your life. You're thinking, that person will never get saved. They are so reprobate. It's never going to happen. Really? Really? Who would expect Egypt and Assyria? Somebody said after service, they were saying, they were looking at a map and... Assyria is kind of the Iraq and Iran and those, that part of the country. <laughs> They're going to be worshiping the Lord? Are you kidding me? Is, is that going to happen? Yes. Because the Lord works miracles. Many years ago, when we were still in the high school, there was a, a lady, she was a Sunday school teacher, dear saint. Her husband uh, was not a believer. He was kind of a reprobate. He was with a biker, not having anything against bikers or whatever, but he was in a kind of an outlaw biker thing, and he had a girlfriend, and he had even moved out of their bedroom. He wasn't, he was living in, in the house, but in another bedroom. And she would come to me and pray, oh, Pastor Neil, would you pray for me? And I'd pray for her, and she was praying for her husband, praying for her husband, praying for her husband. And slowly but surely, and finally one day, I reached, it's like, I got it, I've had it, right? We're not going to deal with this guy. Since he had moved out of the bedroom, he wasn't being a husband to her. He had deserted her. He was an unbeliever. You know what I said? Divorce him. Get rid of him. She looked at me. She said, well, should I? I said, go ahead. (laughs) Dump him. So she went home and she said, I'm done. We're getting a divorce. He got really angry. Now, you might not agree with me, but let me finish the story. gets mad he runs into his bedroom slam the door boom next day is sunday he comes out guess what he says can we go to church what <laughs> well he wouldn't come to our church we we're still meeting in the high school this is many years ago because everybody knew what he was doing so he says well she says where do you want to go to church he says let's go to costa mesa so they go to costa mesa Pastor Chuck preaches the gospel, makes an altar call, and guess what? He goes forward and receives the Lord. And he did receive the Lord. He got rid of his biker thing and the girlfriend and all that other stuff. He got right with the Lord. So she comes in Tuesday, the next day I'm in the office, and she tells me what happened. And I said, what? (laughs) Because I had written him off. He he said, never going to get saved. But guess what? The Lord worked a miracle. My friends, my friends, listen. So many times we've got it all figured out, but God is in the miracle-working business. And just about the time when we think it's over and Kate Smith is coming out on the stage, he works miracles. He works miracles. You younger folks don't know the Kate Smith, but I won't talk about that. Yes, Lord works miracles. Okay, finally, uh, the Lord calls us to be a witness. Chapter 20, verse 1 through 6. The Lord calls us to be a witness. Okay, let me set the context of this particular passage here. Assyria is pressing down. They're coming down and they're conquering every country. Okay? They get to the Philistine city of Ashdod. Okay? And they defeat it. They capture it. That's the context of what we're going to about read. So let's read In the year that the commander came to Ashdod when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and he fought against Ashdod and he captured it. Okay. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast." So the inhabitants of this coastland will say, behold, such is our hope where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how shall we escape? The point? God calls Isaiah to witness that as Egypt and Cush were going to go captive to is- uh, Assyria, Syria, so they too should not put their hope in in Egypt and Cush, but put their hope in, woo, in the Lord. And so he has this witness, and it's a pretty hard thing to do, to witness that they were putting their hope in Egypt and Cush, that they could stop Assyria. And he is saying, don't put your hope in man. Don't put your hope in Egypt. Don't put your hope in Cush. Put your hope in me. Okay? And you read the story. You read the story later on in in Kings where Sennacherib came down, remember? Surrounded Jerusalem, and what happened? Boop, 185,000. They're gone. Okay, now, this is where I get my sixth point. The Lord calls us to be witnesses. The Lord calls us to be witnesses. Now, I don't imagine this was a very easy thing for Isaiah to do. Do you? Uh, It's pretty tough. And some of the time we think it's, you know, it's pretty tough being a witness in our culture, which is a post-Christian culture. Now, what am I asking you to do? Get naked for Jesus? No. No. But listen to this, Acts 1.8. This is what Jesus said but you should receive power and you should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, that was the command he gave those disciples way back in 33 AD. And they were witnesses. And the reason you're sitting here this morning is they were witnesses And throughout the hundreds of years since then, they continue to be witnesses, and we cannot stop being witnesses today, no matter how close we are to the second coming of Christ. We're called to be witnesses. Why is that? Because you and me, we have people, we know people that would never come through that church door on their own. Isn't that true? But you, by your words and your actions, can reach those people. You can help those people. Those people who everybody is saying they'll never get saved. But guess what? You could be part of God's miracle by being that witness. Pastor Rob talked about it, Pastor uh, Stan, Pastor Brian. The last three weeks we're talking about sowing Christ, kind of wrapping it up here. You thought I this is kind of a different sermon based on their series. No, I just pulled it right together. Here it is. You're to be witnesses. We have lots of opportunities. We have a Sunday morning service. Bring people to church. Say, hey, come on to church and let's have breakfast afterwards. We have uh, women's studies on Thursday morning. You can bring women. We have an opportunity every first um, Sunday of the month. We go, we're go. we witnesses in front of the abortion clinic. People say, well, what happened there? We were witnesses. Sometimes we get to talk to people. Sometimes we don't. We're witnesses. We have Greg Cunningham, CBR. He, he's a powerful witness against the whole issue of abortion. Are you involved with him? Are you helping him? Are you, can you be a witness there? Of course you can. Let me ask you a question. When you stand before God and he's holding you accountable, and during all the time they killed 45 million babies, he's going to ask you, well, what did you do, Neil? What did you do during the time in America when they were killing all those babies? Did you support any pro-life companies? Did you do anything? Uh, yeah, huh? That's an important question. You're called to be a witness. We're called to be a witness, not only just with abortion, not only just this whole dying culture. We're called to be a witness. Okay, my time is up. So we have these 12 chapters. What does it say to us? It says, God's going to hold us accountable. The Lord is righteous. When he holds us accountable, he'll do it absolutely perfect. (laughs) He knows what the source of those who are troubling the kingdom. It's Lucifer, the son of the morning. We need to wrestle not against flesh and blood. The Lord's plans will not be frustrated. The Lord works miracles. The Lord calls us to be witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for the word of God and what it means to us. We pray that we would be sensitive to what the word of God is saying to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.